Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. How can you find or create work that, in fact, you love? Is it possible in today's environment? Well, I'm here to tell you that it is. It's probably more possible now than it ever has been. I mean, just think about it. It used to be that there were a lot of barriers to creating unique work. You needed a factory. You needed big buildings with lots of employees. Today, you don't need any of that. It's never been easier to find those things that are unique fit for you and to walk that out in daily work that is meaningful and profitable. I ought to add that in there. You know, sometimes people think, well, if I'm going to do something that I really love, yeah, that'd be cool. But then I'd have to, you know, learn to live on nothing because it's not going to produce any income. Well, yes, it is. I mean, just yesterday I had a young man out here. I'm needing some help here in our property, just keeping things up with spring coming, all the flower beds and water features and things little much for me to keep up with so i've walking a young man around and he was commenting on all the unique things that we've had done here by people whose skills are pretty unique i mean building water features and doing landscaping and doing wood sculptures and creating playground areas for the grandkids i mean those are things that are an expression of people's unique skills in doing that and those are all things that can be done in ways that do in fact produce work that's meaningful and also income that's extraordinary. Well, here's some of the questions we're going to be talking about each week. We go through the files of questions that you, the listeners have submitted. These are real life questions, not things I thought up sitting in a cubicle somewhere, real life questions and select a few in ways that I think will help all of us learn about things that apply to what we're doing. Even if it's not exactly what you're doing, success principles are very transferable. So we can learn together by looking at things that work in one industry and then applying those in whatever you're doing. Well, do you want to be a millionaire? I'm going to talk about that. What's the easiest way to become a millionaire may surprise you. What studies show us there? Here's some other questions. How can I create a job recruitment or coaching program specific to my field? Dan, I'm curious as to how I can protect and present an idea. And he goes on and wants to be paid for that as well. We'll talk about that. How do you get paid for an idea that you have? Dan, I'm a missionary in a foreign country. Are you saying I shouldn't be doing my work this way? He listened a couple weeks ago, I guess, where I talked about that. I'll talk about my concerns again about the traditional way of doing missionary work and raising funds, being a nonprofit. Yeah. I think all those things are in jeopardy today. Dan, I'm a 53 year old white male who feels that when I turn 50, the doors of opportunity closed. Ouch. Turn 50, the doors of opportunity closed. What if you live to be 90, another 40 years with no opportunities? Well, I don't think that's true. And we'll talk about that. Dan, I've had 10 interviews and 10 rejections. How can I figure out what makes them turn me down? Yep, you ought to be doing that. Look in the mirror. If you've had 10 interviews and haven't had four job offers, something's wrong with how you're presenting yourself. It's not the economy. It's not the workplace out there. It's not a recession. It's the fact that people aren't convinced they want you on their team. Well, we've got uh, some live events coming up I want to tell you about. 
Just reminding you, this is Dan Meller in the 48 Days Online Radio Show. You may wonder where the 48 Days comes from if you're a new listener. We welcome you in if you are. 48 Days comes from the title of a book I wrote a few years ago, 48 Days to the Work You Love. And in that, talked about the fact that I think 48 days is enough time to assess where you are, get the advice and opinion of other people, list three or four great opportunities, do a little bit more research, choose the best one and act. Now that's a process whereby you can walk through the decision-making process. If it's getting a new job, moving across the country, what kind of car to buy, what kind of a business to start, any of those things I think, in fact, you can do in 48 days. And I encourage you to do that. Now, what happens is I often see people who are frustrated with, with what they are doing or where they are. We can talk about options, come up with the best solution. I see them two years later. They haven't done anything different. Now, come on. I mean, if you really are discouraged, frustrated with where you are, then you have to decide what are you willing to do differently in order to get different results? You can't just keep doing the same thing and think things are going to change. No, not going to happen that way. So what are you willing to do differently? And that is enough time in which to identify what are my options and then walk that out. So if you roll into day 49, continue doing what you're doing. I mean, that's fine. I can still be your friend, but I'm probably not going to be your coach because I want to work with people who are willing to make the changes that they say they, in fact, are looking for. Well, here's a quotation for the day. It comes from Plato. Necessity is the mother of invention. Now, we've heard that a lot, and I think that's still true. I want to start, I want to tie in uh, one of the reader uh, notes that it was sent in here. This comes from Counselor Rob in Houston, Texas. He says, thinking out of the bottle, he sent me a link to a little video clip where they showed this thinking outside the box. Now what they're doing, I'll describe this to you. I did a blog on this this week. You can go to the 48 days.com blog and look for necessity as the mother of invention. I, I lay that out and have some pictures there to show you what's done, but here's what's happening. This was done by an innovative guy in Manila down in the Phil- near the Philippines. And he is taking water bottles Now visualize like a little Coke bottle or Mountain Dew bottle, whatever it is you drink, Dr. Pepper, it's a little plastic bottle, boom, you you throw it away. He's taking those bottles, creating a little insert in a piece of tin where you then cut a hole in a roof and it'll, you can put it through so that the glass bottle is about two thirds of the way through the tin into the room below. The bottle is then filled with water, a little bit of chlorine in there to keep it clear, keep it clean. The sunlight hitting that bottle from the top transfers into the water below, and it essentially creates a 55-watt light bulb for the room below in a house that doesn't have electricity and is very dark. I love those kind of ideas. I mean, I absolutely love those kind of ideas when I see people doing those things. And we've seen... You know, the little boys in Rwanda make bicycles out of wood. Every single piece is wooden just because necessity is the mother of invention. We see the young guy in Malawi in Southeast Africa who made an electricity generating windmill for his village just out of old junk parts. He read enough to understand kind of how it would work and created a electricity generating windmill. There's a book that, Chronicles that whole story. It's titled The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. A great read. And I've seen, you know, Amish kids who put solar powered lights on their buggies 
or little generators that run off the wheels as it turns and creates electricity. I mean, we've seen all kinds of things. The guy who wanted to have a way to attach a note to a piece of fabric and he didn't want to pierce the fabric. Well, thus came along, he invented the paper clip or just this little bent wire would not pierce the fabric and you could attach anything you wanted to. We've seen post-it notes. We've seen all kinds of things come out of the invention process, but I love these kind of things. And then I wonder with all the modern convenience we, we have today, are we really allowing our kids to invent? Are we giving them opportunity or necessity to invent? I mean, if you have no electricity in your house, you come up with an invention where you use a water bottle that transfers light from the sun into your house and creates a solar powered electric bulb. Well, it's not electric. It's just a solar powered light bulb. But if we have too many conveniences available to us, I mean, have we missed the opportunity to have kids invent the next hula hoop or Frisbee? Because my gosh, you flip on your iPhone, there's hundreds of thousands of games on there. There's not much incentive to have to invent something. And when I was a kid, I mean, we used to invent things out of, golly, out of clothespins and junk parts and things we found at the dump because we didn't have the modern conveniences. We didn't have fancy three-wheelers and things that kids have today. Well, anyway, necessity is the mother of invention. I had somebody as a comment to that blog right in says, well, Dan, yeah, you know, but I've had lots of ideas, but I don't have the money to develop any of them. And I thought, now, wait a minute. This sounds like a setup. I mean, that's necessity is the mother of invention. That's part of the invention process. If you don't have the money to develop it, develop it without any money. Use junk parts. Use things that other people have thrown away. That's part of the invention process. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for the note, Rob. Here's another note from Spencer, who from uh, Illinois, who sent a, a link to another video, and it's about creating road roadway that is an electric panel that is collecting solar energy and creates electricity. If we, he says, if we change the roads into that, you know, there's all kinds of transfer of energy there that we would get and it would create more electricity than the world would ever need. Now it's an expensive process to get completed one time. And there are people who are concerned, Oh, we're going to put the road workers and the asphalt layers and the asphalt companies, you know, out of business. Well, sure. There's always that transition we go through. I mean, when Eli Whitney invents a cotton gin, the immediate impact is that it puts a whole lot of guys out of work. Well, are those guys sitting on the curb because they now have nothing to do? No, they transitioned into other components of the industrial revolution. So they went to work in factories. When we have robots that do the work of factory workers, are those guys just put permanently out of work? No, we go through cycles. We've seen this again and again in our history where new inventions help us transition to new seasons in the history of our country and world. So now we are working with things that have to do with knowledge and information transfer rather than physical work. Just transitions. Don't say it's good or bad. It just is what it is. But look for ways that we're going to get new ideas. Welcome change and you'll stay on the front edge of where the opportunities really are. Well, do you want to be a millionaire? Now, this is, this is another concept, and you know, I, I see people who dance around this, really. People who say, yeah, it's easy, easy to say I'd like to be a millionaire, but they aren't doing anything to move them toward that. In fact, I don't think they really believe that it's possible or, in fact, that they deserve it. Sometimes I see people sabotage their success as they get closer to 
being wealthy because in their mind, they don't think they really are deserving of that. I mean, look at the, look at the athletes. We see athletes come out of the ghetto. They've lived in abject poverty and all of a sudden they get a $20 million signing bonus. And six months later, they're in jail and broke. Well, what happened? They took their level of success back down to the level that they thought matched their personal conception of what they were worth. Well, that's a, that's a big issue. We won't go into that totally, but do you want to be a millionaire? Let me go back to that premise. In 1900, there were fewer than 5,000 millionaires in the United States today. I just checked yesterday, according to Forbes.com, there are nearly 8.4 million millionaires. Somebody new becoming a millionaire about every 12 seconds in the United States of America alone. And in the United States, there are 413 billionaires. So we went from 5,000 millionaires in 1900 to now in 2012, there are 8.4 million. So it's becoming certainly more common. Yeah, it has to do with the devaluation of the dollar perhaps in some ways, but the reality of it is it's just becoming a whole lot easier for a whole lot of us to become millionaires because there's so many ways to do it. But I think there's frequently a mistaken conception about how people get to be millionaires in America. How do you think people get to be millionaires? Is it the Rockefellers and the Kennedys who just inherit money from their families? No, that's very, very rare. 74% of millionaires have their own business. Now this is going to include the people we talk about here, the entrepreneurs, eaglepreneurs, real estate agents. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel or patent something to be very successful. I mean, really when we look at the most common ways for becoming millionaires, the businesses that are producing millionaires, three of the top 10 businesses today that are producing millionaires are dry cleaning, vending and printing. Those are very common businesses. And you may think, well, those are kind of outdated. You certainly have to be in the software development arena or doing a dot-com business of some kind. No. Dry cleaning, vending, and printing are still three of the top 10 millionaire makers in America. 74% of the people out there have their own business. Now, I'm going to come back to that. Let me tell you what the other components are, the way people become millionaires. 10% are senior executives. People like Bob uh, Bob Iger, who was CEO of Walt Disney, and last year in 2011, he was paid $53.3 million. Yeah, you can get to become a millionaire if you are a highly paid senior executive. Obviously, that's pretty rare, but it does happen. About 10% become millionaires in that way. 10% are doctors, lawyers, other professionals. Now, some of these people end up wealthy, but certainly not all. There's a whole lot of those people who earn a lot of money, but they never keep any because they then adapt a consumptive lifestyle because they think other people expect them to be members of the country club and to drive a Lexus and to send their kids to private schools and to vacation in Paris. And so, you know, they make a million dollars and they spend 1.1 million in their lifestyle. So that's, there's not a whole lot of those that end up wealthy, but 10% of millionaires came to it through some kind of professional training. 5% are salespeople and consultants. Now this can be in any industry service or product. Uh, There's really not much connection with academic degrees here. Selling is a, a great equalizer. You can have a eighth grade education or a PhD. And in six months you're at the same place. If you're using selling skills, selling can do that. 5% of millionaires came there because they're salespeople. Now what do we have left? 
If you're doing the mathematics on that, we have 99%. Less than 1%, listen to the things that are included here. Less than 1% are play in the stock market or they're inventors. They're in show business. So they're actors or actresses, authors, songwriters, athletes, lottery winners. All of those things comprise less than 1% of how people become millionaires. But now here's the interesting part of this. That less than 1% category is what gets noticed and talked about. Now, I mean, just think about it. Every little kid wants to be the next Tim Tebow or Taylor Swift. I just read the Taylor Swift last year, made more money than you too. I think, oh my gosh. But anyway, you know, so every little kid wants to be the next Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga. But now these are really rare examples of success. I mean, that's less than 1%. Stock market, inventors, actors, actresses, authors, songwriters, athletes, lottery winners. Now here's the deal. Statistically, you can go from the 1% chance of becoming a millionaire to the 74% chance of becoming a millionaire this afternoon if you swing by Home Depot and pay 200 bucks for a lawnmower and start a landscaping business. You put yourself in the 74% category opportunity for becoming a millionaire as opposed to the less than 1% that included all those other things that we normally look at. Well, I just wasn't lucky enough to be the next Alan Jackson. I just wasn't lucky enough you know, to play golf like Tiger Woods. Well, you don't need to do those things. You don't need to be lucky. You need to put yourself in the 74% category, work your business well, and you have a high likelihood of becoming extremely wealthy in doing that. Now, why don't, I'll, I'll get off of this and move back into some of the questions, but why don't people act in their dreams to become millionaires? There's really three primary reasons that I see. One is fear of failure, just immobilizes them, fear of failure. Two is lack of knowledge. But now that's something we can overcome pretty quickly. You can become knowledgeable in an area pretty quickly. Number three is a perceived lack of money. Now I stress it's a perceived lack of money because it's not really what's holding them back. I mean, people talk about, gee, I don't have enough money to start a business. Well, I mean, keep in mind, Entrepreneur Magazine says 69% of all businesses being started today require less than $10,000 in startup capital. 24% require zero in capital. I mean, it's never been easier than today to start a business with no money at all. You can do that. Literally, absolutely no money. You can clean out your attic this afternoon, put those things on eBay. You are in a legitimate business and you can start a service business, a delivery business, or service business for the elderly. Boom, you can be in business. I mean, the young man that I interviewed yesterday here in our property, I mean, he drove on our property in an old rattle trap Lincoln Continental. I've got all the tools. I've got a tractor here. I've got all the tools, lawnmowers, weed, weed trimmers, everything that he needs. He can be in business for himself, which he would be. I mean, he's certainly not going to be an employee. He'd be an independent contractor working for me in his own business with no investment of any kind. He can start like that and build into anything that he wants to from there. Well, hey, that's the way it goes. You can do the same. Well, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to 48 Days Online Radio Show. Now, if you've got a question... We welcome your question in as well. You can go to the podcast link at 48days.com. 
Tell us what's troubling you, what's challenging you, what's holding you back from being a millionaire. We'll unpack your question. It'll help others as well in the process to know how to get past that. Well, let's go back to the question. Sergio from San Diego says, I need your advice on creating a job coaching program. I've been thinking about ways that I can help people in my field, pharmacy technician, find work after graduation and how to earn ten to $15,000 more in income than their counterparts. Now he says he's got the experience. He's been involved in the hiring training already. He knows the technology. My question is, who can I talk to, model, read, or watch on creating a job recruitment or coaching program specific to my field? I want to create and launch this program within the next 30 days. Thanks. Well, thanks for your question, Sergio. Look at those who are already doing what you say you want to do. I mean, it's just called due diligence. If I'm going to open an ice cream parlor in Franklin, Tennessee, I'm going to look at the fact that there's already a Baskin Robbins. There's a Sweet CC's. There's a Ben and Jerry's. I mean, I need to know those things. So you do the same thing. Go to people who are doing the closest to what it is you're describing that you want to do to learn how to do it better. So go to, I mean, staff point, simply hired. I mean, RX pro health has a program for pharmacy technicians, maximum staffing. I mean, go to all those programs. They're doing exactly what you say you want to do where they are recruiting people as pharmacy technicians, perhaps providing part of the training. You can or cannot do that. It doesn't matter. You just identify what it is you want to do. I mean, what you're describing has been done hundreds of times in specific professional niches. You can work with just engineers. Engineers typically are not really good about promoting and marketing themselves into great positions. So if you, in fact, find those positions, match those people up, they will give you a part of their earnings. I know, know a guy who did exactly that with engineers. He's been doing it for years. He and his wife work out of their home, but they place engineers. They take about 20% of what those engineers make on an ongoing basis. They have people that have been in the same position for 10 years. And this couple continues to get that cut because it's essentially those are contract positions, not employee positions. They continue to get that share of the revenue. So yeah, what you're describing is very legit, very doable. You just decide what it is you're going to do. That's going to give you that unique advantage. What is your USP? What's your unique selling proposition compared to the other people that are also placing pharmacy technicians, get out there and promote it. Great business model. You can do it. Well, Michael says, I'm curious how I can protect and present an idea. I work for a very large corporation where I'm contracted out to another large company. I have an idea that would make the second company a lot of money. I have no interaction with upper level management. So how do I get in and present this idea with a large reward and at the same time protect it from just getting implemented without compensation? Now, Michael went on to describe the idea. I won't read that on the air. Don't want to reduce the value of his idea in any way, but that's not really the case. Anyway, here's the deal. Don't expect to be paid for an idea. Now I want to kind of, really swing the pendulum here for a little bit. Uh, we, we always think, you know, man, if I just could tell McDonald's to put their ketchup instead of those little tear apart packets, put it in a little cup, it'd be a lot more efficient. People wouldn't like it. They'd use more. They'd pay for it. You could have an add on price for that. Well, that has zero value. I mean, we can go down that lane all we want to. It has zero value to McDonald's. I mean, for one thing, 
it's, believe me, they've already thought about it. The other thing is, the only people that make money are those who create an implementation for the idea. So I can talk about a better airplane or a car that rides on air. So we don't have the friction and don't have to worry about rubber. Do we have the technology and ingenuity for that? Well, certainly we do. Am I going to get paid for my idea because I think about that? Not a chance in the world. So an idea by itself has very little value. What you want to do now, I, let's just take, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Had a guy come to me, he happened to be a weightlifter. He developed a better weightlifting glove. Weightlifters that are serious, you know, have the gloves, they strap on, boom, boom, boom. He had one that was designed better. I'm not a weightlifter, so I didn't even understand it that much, but he wanted to, you know, license that idea with somebody like Reebok or Nike or Adidas. And I said, it has no value. It's just an idea. I said, now, if you create a prototype for that, you go out and sell 10,000 of those, then you have some leverage to your idea. Then you can go back to a company like Nike or Reebok and say, wow, everywhere I go, they want it. That's exactly what this young guy did. Made a prototype, had those produced. It was fairly rough, but it looked nice. Had a nice little packaging. He went to health and fitness centers and everywhere he went, they wanted them. They ordered them right on the spot. So when he had sold like 10,000 of those, then he had a lot of leverage for that. Then he can take that somewhere and get compensated for that. That's really what you have to do. You have to show that an idea works. You have to be willing to do the implementation. The idea by itself just doesn't have a whole lot of value. Well, John says, Dan, I'm a missionary in a foreign country. My salary comes from individuals and churches in the U.S. who donate. I love your podcast, but I was surprised at the episode called I Wasn't Losing, I Was Learning. Are you saying I shouldn't be doing my work this way? Are you saying missionaries shouldn't be sent and supported financially? Do you believe in business? Do you only believe in business as mission? Thanks for your thoughts. Well, I, again, sometimes I do a pendulum swing just for the impact of stretching our thinking. I see people who haven't been able to get a job for 14 months and all of a sudden they decide, Oh, God's calling me to be a missionary. Will you give me money? So I can go to Haiti and help in the work there and you just, you know, pay me so I don't have to worry about getting a job here. Now, again, that's not the way that somebody should experience a calling, obviously, but I've seen that happen hundreds of times in exactly that way. I think that's a very weak model, but I also think the whole model of nonprofits is in a weakened position right now. There's been so much abuse. People are mistrusting of that. There've been an explosion of social entrepreneurship, ethical capitalism, where businesses are saying, we're going to do good work. We're going to make the world a better place. We're going to share truth with people around the world. Even though we're a for-profit business, it can be done so much more legitimately in that way. And yeah, I think that nonprofit status is going to weaken more and more and more. I think you're on the bubble. If you are making your living, if you're being compensated simply based on donations that people are making, I think you're on the bubble. I think you ought to be looking at other ways to do that. If you want to live in Rwanda and help the people there, that's cool. I commend you on doing that. My question is, what's your economic model? How are you going to make that work? If you're simply going to come back here and expect rich Americans to give you money because you're doing something worthwhile, I think that's a terrible plan. And I think less 
there's going to be fewer and fewer opportunities to make that work. So yeah, I challenge your thinking on that. And there, the reality is I talk to missionaries every week who say, wow, my denomination just pulled a plug. They aren't going to fund me anymore. What should I do? So I think it's healthy to be looking at other ways to continue doing that kind of work. If, if that's what you want to do, where you have other sources of income, where you do something that is social entrepreneurship, where you figure out how can I make this work? We have lots of examples that I won't take time to go into those. Well, this comes from Michael and his lead in is he says, no job, no life. Wow. I've been involved in the energy industry for 30 years. And until four years ago, I'd never been laid off. Now I am currently in my layoff again for the 12th time. And I have a family of seven to support. Apparently five kids, mom and dad, seven people. I recently started back to school to get my bachelor's degree in energy management. I'm a 53 year old white male who feels that when I turn 50, the doors of opportunity closed. I've had many struggles in the last 10 years. The major one was losing all my retirement. I feel like I just get my head above water enough to get a breath. And then I go back under my wife and I've been involved in several network marketing business. I've not done well. I'm on unemployment and he goes on and on and on. No job, no life. Well, I don't have easy solutions for whatever it is you're encountering. Certainly in energy management, there are a lot of opportunities. It's a growing field. What I do want to say is if you lose hope, you're toast. If you lose hope, if you're discouraged, angry, bitter, depressed, it doesn't matter what the economy is or what opportunities are out there. You're not going to come across as an appealing, attractive candidate. So you've got to maintain hope and confidence that you have something to offer that people are going to pay you well for that, that you can be the responsible provider for your family that you want to be. I mean, you've got to continue to believe that because when you cross that threshold, you lose hope. You are in fact toast. And in fact, there are no opportunities. I mean, that's why I discourage people from reading the newspaper and watching the news. What do you hear? You hear all the bad things that are happening out there. We're in a recession. Wrong people are in political power, blah, blah, blah. We're all going down the tubes. We owe too much to China. Other companies are overtaking our power. I mean, it just sounds horrible. I mean, you ought to just go crawl in a hole somewhere, curl up and die. Well, don't do that. And believe me, there's nothing about turning 50 that closes the doors unless you think that's true. And in today's environment where we have knowledge and the, the knowledge and the implementation of those are the king. I mean, physical prowess is not what we're looking for. That means very little in most opportunities today. So the fact that you turn 50, you ought to be getting sharper mentally, even if you're diminishing physically, but that doesn't change your opportunities. You ought to increase opportunities rather than diminish those. Tough issue. Again, I don't have cookie cutter solutions for your individual situation, Michael, but you've got to maintain hope. That's the thing that is defeating you. It's what's in between your own two ears. It's not what's out here in the real world. Well, Brad says, Dan, thanks for your show. My question is, can I take a book and create an online class that uses the book for a textbook? Let's say taking a book like Body for Life by Bill Phillips or taking 48 Days to the Work You Love and do an online class centered around the book where each student would receive a copy of the book, which would be included in the fee. Is there a limit to how much you can read and quote the book as part of the class as long as each student paid for the book included in the class? Well, that is a real gray area, Brad, and increasingly so as education is moving online. 
This is becoming more and more of an issue because certainly in a college classroom, you use a textbook on biology written by John Doe. That's the textbook. The professor doesn't have have to add much to that. They go through the textbook. He reads from that. He quotes from that. That's what they're tested on. So obviously there's a model precedent for what you're describing. Can you do this online where you just take a book and use the content? Yeah, you can do that but it's going to become increasingly under inspection by people like me, the authors. Are you in copyright infringement? Are the people who are getting access to the information really required to get the book? Are you just simply taking content and repurposing it for your own use? It's one of those not real clear, not a real clear issue today. Uh, If you're going to err, err on the side of being cautious rather than exposing yourself to something where you may get your hands slapped. Sylvia says from Houston, Dan, I've recently thought about doing tax preparation for people online. What do I do? What I do is go to the H and R block website and I help people fill out the tax forms for people who don't know how to do it or don't have times themselves. Is this ethical? I'm not a tax expert but I do my own taxes every year and my own on software is pretty easy to use. Sure. Sylvia, there's nothing unethical certainly about what you're doing. And there's certainly nothing illegal about what you're doing. As long as you don't misrepresent your credentials and you can get people to pay you for your help, you're absolutely fine. And there's lots of people out here who are providing tax help. They're not credentialed or licensed in any particular way, but they understand the tax codes and can help walk people through the complicated, complicated forms. Absolutely. You can do that. No, no problem at all. Do it just exactly like you're describing. Well, again, you're listening to Dan Miller. This is a 48 days online radio show where each week we take your questions, the listeners, people who are involved at 48 days.net and certainly in our growing listening audience coming through radio stations like WWO up in uh, Fort Wayne. I mean, a lot of you are new listeners to the 48 days online radio show. We welcome your questions. Just go to the podcast link at 48 days.com and you can shoot your question in there. We'll entertain it for an upcoming show. Randy from Georgia says, I'm the guy with a track record of great ideas and little follow through. But now I'm really trying to work the Dan and Dave, Dan Miller, Dave Ramsey steps to no more Mondays and financial peace. I'm a lifelong golfer with an act for being a really good putter. So I'd like to use my information, share my putting tips, suggestions with other golfers, but it sure be nice to make a profit in the process. One of your articles stated that self-publishing an ebook can be done without an investment, but instead of a book, I'd like to create a video on steps to better putting. Since golf instruction is easier learned when it's visual. I agree. Any suggestions on how to go about making a video? How can I self publish the video? Well, all you need to do is just jump online and you're going to see millions of videos out, out there. Look at the massive swing we've had to inexpensively done videos. I mean, even major product introductions done with an interview of a guy in a street or video shot by amateurs. Now remember the, uh, super bowl Doritos commercial. I mean the Doritos commercial man's best friend should a dog. And there was a sign up there where it was showing that there was a lost cat 
and a man looked over and saw the dog burying something and it looked suspiciously like the uh, top of a black cat. Well, it, it was a beautiful twist. I mean, we talk about a dog mean being man's best friend in this situation, the dog rewarded the, the man to keep his mouth shut. Well, that was a Doritos commercial. The kid that did that said he spent $20 to make the commercial. That was run during the Super Bowl. The day after the Super Bowl, Doritos wrote him a check for a million dollars. The video didn't require a whole lot to be made, even though it got that kind of national attention and promotion. So, yeah, you can do a lot of things. I mean, it's really common to do, especially how-to videos where they're very inexpensively done. Just doing them yourself. When we did the 48 Days to the Work You Love seminar series, we originally recorded those in a live presentation at one of the big churches here. So we had a big audience. We recorded them like that. I started to do the editing. I decided this is not what I want. It looked too much like I'm a spectator, like the real deal happened, you know, with all these people having fun in a big room, I wasn't there. So I'm just getting the leftovers. Anyway, I trashed that entire, we had 36 reels of video and I threw the whole thing away. We went to the Renaissance center out in Dixon where they do a lot of movie country music videos and things. And we did a two day shoot out there. Now here's the deal. My publisher wanted to do the videos for the 48 days to the work you'll have seminar, but they said they didn't have $250,000 in their budget to do the video series, 12 session videos. They didn't have the $250,000 in their budget to do that. I said, that's fine. I'll just do it myself. I did that. I got a production coordinator. That's what he does. He does videos. He got the production team together. We had a three camera shoot, boom cameras, the whole thing. Two days, at the Renaissance center editing. I paid $7,500 for that entire process. A publisher saw it as a $250,000 budget item. I did it. And we, of course, made you know millions of dollars as a result, but did it for $7,500. So, yeah, you can do what you're talking about. Do it yourself. You can get a little flip camera and do it. I mean, get a good lighting system set up and do it. People, especially for something like how to in golf, I mean, they aren't going to expect a full blown production. They want to know how to play golf better. And you can do that with a very inexpensive production method. Shay E says, Dan, I'm currently applying. Now listen to this. I'm applying for a job out of college. I've had interviews with about 10 different companies, but have been turned down on all 10 cases. How can I figure out what it is that I'm doing during the interview that makes them turn me down? Is there a way to diagnose this so I don't keep repeating the same mistake and getting the same results in interviews? Well, Shay, I have to commend you on how you've framed your question. You didn't say gee, people really aren't hiring. Gee, the economy is bad. Gee, we're in a recession because I had 10 interviews and got 10 rejections. No, you're saying, what is it that I'm doing wrong to have 10 interviews and get 10 rejections? And you're exactly looking at the right place. If you've had 10 interviews in this economy and you haven't gotten two or three job offers, something's wrong with how you're presenting yourself as a candidate. Because if you get all the way into a personal interview, people have already decided that based on what they see on paper, they're interested and then they get with you personally and they decide, nope, we don't want this person on our team. We don't want her on our team. 
something is wrong. You need to get a different answer to that question when people are asking themselves, do we want this person on our team? So do practice interviews with other people that you know and trust. Do a role reversal. Get them to play you and you be the interviewer. And then ask yourself, would I hire this person? Because that's what people are asking themselves in the interview. Do I like this person? Is this person fun to be around? Are they honest? Are they going to fit in as part of the team? Something in your presentation is not conveying that. Practice having more energy. You know, more energy. Sit up straighter. Hold your shoulders back. Tilt your head back a little bit. Have a firm handshake. Look people right in the eye. Practice things. Go through the skills that I lay out in 48 Days to the Work You Love, if you don't have those, on how to interview, how to do that effectively. Tell you what, I'll send you a fresh copy of 48 Days to the Work You Love in case you don't have that. Shay, we'll get a copy sent out to you. Well, Drew in Panama City says, Dan, is it okay to change just for the sake of change? I'm currently 30 years old and employed as a CPA and have been for the last seven years. There are periods where I'm very fulfilled with my job and see a very bright future. On the other hand, there are also periods where it seems like a bad fit and I can't see myself in public accounting for the next 30 years. My wife just graduated in a highly specialized master's program and has the opportunity to make six figures. We will also likely be moving from our current location. I'm working to identify my passion in the workplace. I feel like the timing might be right for me to try my hand at something else. Is this healthy? Now, again, let me recap. Drew says he's 30 years old. He's been working as a CPA for the last seven years. So started when he was 23 years old, has seven years he's worked as a CPA. Is it okay to change just for the sake of change? Now, Drew, man, tell, trust me. You're asking the wrong guy if you think I'm going to say don't change. I mean, I love change. I'm, I'm attracted to change like a moth to a light. I think change is healthy, invigorating, energizing. I mean, my wife still calls me a three-year man because she knows that's about how long it takes me to get totally bored with something, even if it's very successful. I have to have change. Now, part of that comes from just how we're wired, but if you're feeling you're that urge for change, don't try to just push it under the carpet and think, well, no, gee, I'm 30 years old. I can eke out another 30 years doing this, even though I'm not excited about it because I have my degree and my credentials. I'm a CPA. People expect me. They pay me well. Don't do that. I mean, that's a great way to miss new opportunity, new excitement. Now, again, I am going to err on the side of creating change, even if it's not necessary. That is part of how I'm wired. I love change. I love trying to find things that are new and different. And one of my mottos is if it ain't broke, break it. You may not be that way. And I'm not saying you have to be that way, but yeah, change is healthy. I mean, there's a whole lot of people that have been in jobs for 20 years and they are patting themselves on the back because they're loyal. Well, they're loyal. They also are undercompensated because they haven't made changes to keep up with things. They're doing something that they were a candidate to do 20 years ago. Now they're a whole lot smarter. They're positioned to do a whole lot more things, but they aren't taking the initiative to do anything different. Wow. Why aren't they? Yeah. They ought to initiate change. Even if change doesn't show up in an unexpected or unwelcome way, initiate change. So you don't miss the very best that there is out there that's available. Well, I guess you know where I stand on that. 
<laughs> well, Ann from Asheville says, Dan, I'm a 47 year old stay at home mom and widow. I've been out of the workplace for 16 years. I'm at the place where I need some part-time income. I'd like to start a payroll tax business that could eventually become full-time. I really enjoyed that aspect of my past job. I'm stumped on how to get myself up to speed. Do I take some courses? Do I find a part-time job to refresh my skills? How do I attract the confidence of of clients and learn the mechanics of running my own business? I enjoy your podcast. She's got some other things. But anyway, how do you get up to speed as a payroll tax person if that, in fact, is what you want to do? You can do that very quickly. Just do a quick search. You'll find things like the American Payroll Association. They have one to three day courses where you go through. You can have different levels of payroll understanding, different applications. You can do payroll in the manufacturing business or construction and real estate. I mean, you can specialize. You can go through that one to three days. You get a certification. You get a nice piece of paper to hang in your wall and take out there to give you increased self-confidence and say, this is what I do. This is what I'm an expert in. So you can do that very quickly, very inexpensively. And I would encourage you to do it in that way. Don't go back to school. I think you have to sit in a classroom for four years with kids half your age. I mean, no, you're past that. Just become an expert very quickly. And you can do this in, again, one to three day courses. But certainly in a 30 day period, you can put yourself in a category of being a payroll tax expert if you have any background in that at all. Luke says, now this is is kind of a tough one. Luke says, my wife and I both have symptoms typically associated with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome for 12 years now. It's impacted our ability to function on a very basic level, prevented us from doing a lot of things we'd like to do with our four young kids. It's eliminated our ability to earn an income and serve in the field we were working in as foreign missionaries. I've done extensive research on the subject for many years to find ways to get better but I do not have a medical degree or training. I feel comfortable writing about certain aspects of the subject with some level of authority and believe I have identified an online niche where I could profitably present this information, earning passive income. Here's Luke's question. How far can I legally go in presenting information related to a medical issue as someone with no medical qualifications? Well, I mean, to, again, really kind of swing the pendulum all the way. Look, you can be an auto mechanic and still talk about medical issues. If people listen to you, if you have a credible story of your own, I mean, there are a lot of people who are in multi-level marketing companies and have no medical background. I mean, frankly, in today's environment and, and with the nutraceutical products, you know, take this pill, take this product, drink this juice. I mean, look at all the juices out there that there are claimed to cure anything. And those are being promoted with pe- by people who do not have medical background. They just have been a recipient of the benefits. And because of that, they're promoting it. There's nothing unethical about that. I mean, again, you don't want to misrepresent your background. Don't be like, uh, golly, the, uh, Kevin Trudeau. Remember him? He's, he's on TV all the time. And he wrote books like Natural Cures, What They Don't Want You to Know About. And he makes all kinds of accusations the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the pharmaceutical industry, the medical profession, and he has no background. And he's really gone over the line because he misrepresents his own background. I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, don't do that. But if you come to me and say, look, I've suffered from fibromyalgia for 12 years. Here's what I have found that has helped me. Here's what I've found that has really 
helped me get better. Well, you can do that. I mean, you don't need any particular kind of training to just share your story. And if you find products or information that have been helpful to you, you can share those. Nothing unethical about that at all. You can do that. Hang in there. I hope you get better in what you're doing and how you're feeling. Well, we're at the end of the time here. We're going to take us out a little different way today. I started with what would you do if you were a millionaire? How could you become a millionaire? So we're going to just have this if I had a million dollars taking us out today. This is Dan Meller, 48 Days Online Radio, encouraging you to be part of the growing group who is finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, productive, and profitable. Check out our resources, 48days.com. Join the growing group, over 11,000 strong at 48days.net. People who are doing exactly that. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on 48 Days Online Radio.